Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Now we are back to John chapter 17. We took a couple of weeks off over the holidays and now we are ready to return. You remember that John 17 is Christ's high priestly prayer prayed to the Father in the presence of his disciples who overheard him pray and therefore heard the contents of this prayer and it was instructive to them even as it is very instructive to us today. It is the longest prayer that is recorded, spoken by Christ in the Gospels. Many references to prayer make it clear that he prayed many times, long seasons, periods of prayer, evidently hours of praying, prayers that are not recorded for us. But this one is recorded. The Holy Spirit wants us to consider it very carefully. He wants us to learn from it. You recall that it is divided into three parts. Christ prays first for himself, secondly for his disciples, and thirdly for all his people. Yes, let's say that again. He prays first for himself, verses 1 through 5, secondly for his disciples, verses 6 through 19, and thirdly, for all his people, that is, the church universal, the bride of Christ, all, all born-again believers. But what's left out? He does not pray for anyone who is unconverted in this prayer. And he says so in the prayer, that he's not, he's not intending to do that. That's instructive in itself. So we won't, we'll get to that in due season when we get to that particular statement. But we make note of it now at this time. Well, let me welcome you to this January 7 edition of the Beacon Broadcast, the first Sunday of the new year. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for remembering that we do need financial help to continue teaching on this station. Christ prays for himself, and we have looked at this in pretty good detail prior to today, back in the month of December. His petitions were that the Father would glorify the Son, verse 1, and that the Father would, would glorify the Son again in verse 5. Very similar petitions, but one is made with the cross in view, that the Father will glorify the Son through the crucifixion. How amazing that God could take the, the worst act of human history and turn it into something to glorify the one who was so wrongly executed in this fashion. So to glorify the Son with the cross and to glorify the Son with his crown when he is returned 
to glory. But we have been looking at the reasons that support this petition, and we are getting ready to to uh, get to one more of those that we haven't been able to cover yet. But first of all, the first reason that Christ prays for these things is because it is a divinely appointed time. The hour has come. And the time having come, then now is the time to pray for this to happen. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It sounds like this time was already fixed. It sounds like it was foreordained. It sounds like it was determined ahead of time. So why would Christ pray in view of the appointed time that has come? And the answer is because God not only appoints the ends, E-N-D-S, the conclusions of his, of his purpose and plan, but he also appoints the means which he will use to bring about his appointed purposes. So, God has a predestined people, an elect people, who will be saved. Those who will be saved are already chosen by God, foreordained unto salvation. And they will be saved, every one of them, and only they will be saved. Others will be passed by and will be left to their just condemnation. But a great host are going to be rescued out of a lo- uh, uh, an amazing act of loving kindness and mercy. And yet, how is God going to do that? By the preaching of the gospel. See, he ordains the end. He ordains the, the uh, conclusion of what he's going to do. He ordains the purpose that he has, has planned since before the foundation of the world. And it will be carried out unerringly. It will be carried out without one single elect person failing to come to faith in Christ and being eternally saved. But... He has also appointed the means by which that will be done. He has determined that the elect shall be brought to to Christ, to become followers of Christ, by the preaching of the gospel. And when the gospel goes forth, the Holy Spirit will take that gospel and apply it powerfully, apply it effectively to the hearts of God's elect. So we have a part to play in this. Those who don't understand the sovereignty of God in salvation or really in any other area of life, those who don't understand it, who think there's a contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, haven't thought through this issue carefully. God has determined the end, namely the salvation of every elect person, God has determined the means, namely the proclamation of the gospel, to the world at large, to preach the gospel indiscriminately, to preach the gospel to everyone and to all, and to invite all of them to come to Christ. And those who refuse will be judged for their refusal, but those who are the elect of God will be brought to faith when they hear the proclamation of the gospel, maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but they will be brought to faith in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. So God ordains both 
the outcome as well as the means that he is going to use to make that happen. And the same thing is true in the area of prayer. If what God intends to do has already been determined, it's already been fixed, then why should I bother to pray? Well, there are several answers to that question. But I heard somebody recently make that very objection, or at least raise that very question. Answer number one is, we pray because God commands us to. That, that should be sufficient. We don't need to understand the purpose for it, the reason for it. It doesn't have to make sense to us necessarily. We can be certain that it will make sense to God. After all, we do believe, don't we, that God's ways are higher than our ways? We do believe, don't we, that God is infinitely wise and we are not? That God has all understanding and we don't? We have very limited understanding. We do believe these things, don't we? If we don't, we are blind in our pride. So it's enough that God commands it. If God commands us to pray, then surely we who have a desire to honor the Lord, to please the Lord, to obey the Lord, will obey his command to pray. And we will find out that when we do so, God has many wonderful purposes in our praying. It's not only that through our prayers he's going to accomplish his purposes. It is also through our prayers that we are going to be sanctified. We are going to grow. We are going to be made more Christ-like. We are going to honor the Lord with our worship. But God has ordained what will take place, but God has also ordained that what will take place in many cases, not in every case, but what will take place in many cases will take place in response to the prayers of God's people. So let us pray. Pray with confidence. Pray with joy. When we pray, we are worshiping God. We are obeying God. We are communing with the Heavenly Father. We are growing in grace. And we are employing one of the means that God uses to accomplish his divine purposes. And because we are the children of God, it is our will to conform to his will. We want what God wants, and we want to be engaged in what God is doing. And one of the ways to do that is to pray, and to pray as best we can according to God's will as we understand it from Scripture, knowing that many times we don't understand it fully, but we pray according to God's will the best we do understand it, and always humbly yield to the Lord in saying, this is my petition. If it is not in conformity with your will, then my desire is not for my petition to be granted, but for your will to be done. Like Jesus, that's the way he prayed. Father, not my will, but thine be done. He prayed in regard to desiring for the cup of the excruciating time of being separated from the Father and bearing the sins, the sin guilt, and the sins in that time of guilt for all of his people. And he, so, so agonizing was the thought of that to one who had never sinned, to one who was perfectly holy, to one who had never been separated from his Father in perfect communion and fellowship to, to, to 
contemplate being a sin bearer with all the guilt and sinfulness of millions of people placed upon him and being separated from his father so that he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The thought of that was agonizing to him. And so he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's some other way to accomplish redemption, please, oh, heavenly father, show that other way. This is is agonizing in its contemplation. I am, I am burdened down more greatly than I have ever been burdened before with the thought of what is going to take place here. Oh, Heavenly Father, if there is another way, like for Abraham, who was commanded to sacrifice his only beloved son Isaac upon the altar on Mount Moriah, and at the last moment, God spared Isaac and provided another sacrifice, another way. And so Jesus prayed, Heavenly Father, is it possible that there is another way to accomplish this? If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will. My will would be to avoid this, but thy will If this is the only way, this is the appointed way, and this is the only way that it can be accomplished, not my will, but thine be done. What what a beautiful example our Savior gave, and we should pray the same way. So, reasons to support Christ's petitions. Number one, the divinely appointed time had come. Number two, the divinely appointed purpose was at hand. And then, number three, the divinely appointed work was at stake. Let's read the opening verses, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, where Jesus prays for himself. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. If you have difficulty accepting or understanding what I said earlier about the chosen people of God, the elect of God that are going to be saved, just listen to the words of Christ in verse 2. Let me say it again. As you have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh, for what purpose? That he should give eternal life to whom? To as many as thou hast given him. To as many as you have given him. To that many, every one of those many, and not one more than those many. That's what Jesus said in this high priestly prayer. This is not a man-made doctrine. This is not a doctrine based upon some some strained theology that appeals to certain people. This is exactly what the Bible teaches. We must come to grips with it if we are people of the book. Are we Bible-believing people? Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Yes, indeed. The divinely appointed time had come, so Christ prays these petitions. Yes, indeed. The divinely appointed purpose is to be fulfilled, so Christ prays these petitions. Yes, indeed. The divinely appointed work is about to be completed, namely to save sinners, the work of redemption, the work of salvation, the salvation of the elect, as we just saw it in verse 2. Therefore, Christ petitions these two these two related petitions, glorify me upon the cross, glorify me upon the throne. I'm looking back at verse 2 for a moment because it's always intrigued me. And here Jesus says, As you have given him, that is the Son, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. When the Father glorifies the Son upon the cross, the result of that is going to be that he will be given universal authority, complete sovereignty. He will be given authority over all flesh. That's over everyone without exception. Every individual person in the world, every angel, holy or fallen, in all the universe. He is going to be given authority over them all. You say, well, didn't he have that authority before he became man and and, and walked upon the earth and lived a, a life of obedience before the Father and died upon the cross? Didn't he have such authority before that? Yes, he did, obviously. He was God, eternal God, upon his throne in heaven when he stepped off that throne to come to the earth. But, I think I mentioned this on a previous broadcast, never before has there been a glorified man given this authority. Christ had the glory of God in his pre-incarnate glory, but now he's going to be resurrected from the grave and his humanity, now forever he's going to have two natures. He didn't take that human nature upon him for a time and then lay it aside. I'm done with that now. Go back to my previous state, my previous condition. No, he took that humanity with him into eternity. He took that humanity with him into heaven, now glorified, that body now glorified, but still the two natures, his divine nature and his human nature, but now his human nature has, as it were, been, been uh, inf um, I'm not sure what word I want to use here, infused, his human nature has been infused with his divine nature, but now the God-man, the, the eternal spirit son of God, now joined to the, the um, hu human Son of God, who, who had a beginning in time, but is now going to be forever glorified throughout all eternity, that one is going to be given this 
authority, this, this sovereignty to rule over everything in the universe. Yes, his previous authority is being restored, but it's being restored to one who now has a different, different condition than he had before when he had this authority. Now it is the glorified man infused with eternal deity that has this authority. It's quite a quite an, an astonishing truth. And again, we can't really fully understand it. I can't get my mind completely wrapped around it, but I love pecking around the edges of it and considering these things. So he has a uni- universal authority, power over all flesh. But in that universal authority, when it comes to the work of salvation, which is in view here, it is, we might say, a selected activity, he is given power all over all flesh that he might give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. I have toyed with the idea that in the first part of verse 2, there is a hint at there being a universal aspect to the atonement. There's an argument, you may know, between those who believe in universal atonement and those who believe in what is called limited atonement. Limited atonement or particular redemption, which is probably a better term, is the name that is given to the doctrine of those who understand the Scripture to say that Christ savingly died for his people and only for his people. He did not die to provide a sacrifice, an atonement, for every man and woman in all the world. He died to to make that sacrifice, that atonement, for all of his people, all of the elect. It is a limited atonement. It is limited only to those who are the elect of God. That's who he died savingly for upon the cross. Now, people object to that. That, That's probably one of the hardest (laughs) doctrines for some people to come to grips with. It just seems to fly in the face of everything that most people have believed all of their lives as Christians, all of their Christian lives. But I point out to you, I don't want to, to debate this little one issue endlessly, but I point out to you that everybody, or nearly everybody, believes in a limited atonement. It's just who limits it. Now, of course, there are some people who, who are universalists in the sense that they believe that everybody's going to be saved. Nobody's going to hell. But that's surely not what the Bible teaches, and I assume that you don't believe that, so we'll dismiss that false doctrine for the moment. But the question is, didn't Christ die savingly for everybody, and it's up to the individuals to receive it or reject it, and those who receive it receive the benefits of it, and those who reject it do not receive the benefits of it, but the benefit has been made? No. Why? Because the atonement is a sacrifice that secures the salvation of all those for whom it was made. 
the atonement is an, an arrangement between the Son who made the sacrifice and the Father who receives the sacrifice. And when the Father receives this sacrifice, he accepts it, then those who were included in that sacrifice are saved. They are justified. They, or will be, when in, in the passing of time, when the Holy Spirit brings them to new birth and to faith in Christ, and they, they trust in Christ, they are there then justified. And so everyone for whom that sacrifice is made has his sins already paid for. If Christ paid for my sins upon the cross, then I can't go to hell. If Christ paid for the sins of Judas, Iscariot, upon the cross, then Judas can't go to hell. If his sins were paid for, God is not going to demand payment twice. First, by the work of Christ upon the cross, and then secondly, for the sinner himself. If the sinner's price of redemption was paid for by Christ upon the cross, then it's paid for, and it can never be required again. So, no, Christ did not die upon the cross for everyone. He died upon the cross for the elect, but everyone who believes is elect. <laughs> and therefore, no one needs to concern himself with the question, no un unconverted person who is considering his need of salvation needs to concern himself with the question, well, am I one of the elect? Am I one for whom Christ died? Am I included in the atonement? The invitation to come to Christ and be saved is proclaimed universally to all without exception, without distinction, and if you will believe it, then you will be included. But here's what I'm getting at in all of this. It does seem to me like there is a universal aspect to Christ's death upon the cross, and that is in the first part of verse 2. With the cross in view, Christ prays, as you, Father, have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh, in order that he should give eternal life <clears throat> to as many as you have given him. Christ's death upon the cross secured universal authority over all flesh, over everybody, elect and non-elect, believers and unbelievers, repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. He was granted authority over all flesh. There's a universal aspect to the atonement, if you want to call it that, there's a universal aspect to his work upon the cross in that statement that the Father has given to the Son all authority. But then there is a particular and very carefully worded particularized aspect to his death upon the cross in the last part of verse 2, that he should give eternal life to whom? And we might say, well, to everybody who believes on him. And that's true. And I just said that a moment ago, but that's not the way it's stated here. 
that he should give eternal life to as many as you, Father, have given to him. The Father has given to his Son a particular body of elect people, and with the authority that God is giving to the Son, because of his work upon the cross, the Son is going to give eternal life to every one of those people chosen by God, every one that the Father has selected to give to the Son. The Son, in turn, will pay for their redemption upon the cross. Let's talk about it again next Sunday. Until then, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.